Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Benilla. On this episode, I'm really excited to bring the conversation I had with David Vivers. Uh, David is an award-winning historian and lecturer in early modern history at University of Bangor. He has his PhD from the University of Kent, uh, specifically in the British Empire. And he is also the author of the latest book, The Great Defiance, How the World Took on the British Empire. Uh, and that is what we talk about in this conversation. We start the conversation by talking about just generally what a lot of his book is about, which is why do we ignore some parts of history in the story of the British Empire and usually just kind of this good versus evil, you know, the British Empire always comes out on top kind of thing. And so we, we talk about some of these other stories that don't get talked about as much as he does in his book. And we talk about some of the resistance that people have to telling other other stories a part of the uh, British Empire. We talk about where he starts in the book, the Irish resistance to the British Empire. Um, we talk about uh, a good bit, how the British colonized North America, and some of the ideas behind the interactions with Native peoples. We spend a good amount of time in this part of the conversation. And I was really, 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 really happy with how we dialogued about this. Um, in the conversation you'll hear, I'm, I'm doing a lot of uh, playing the kind of conduit to many types of objections and many types of claims that people make about talking about these types of stories. Um, and it was really, really nice to hear him spell it all out and why a lot of these ideas don't make sense or they don't fit both uh, factually and morally. And so it was just, it was just fantastic to have that part of the, the conversation here. We move over to Asia. We talk about the British Empire and working with other empires in Asia and what that looked like. Uh, we talk about some of the resistance the British Empire met in uh, various African countries. And, and then we, we end by talking about this, how do we have this full picture of how we remember the British Empire um, you know, mo most accurately. Uh, David is so wonderful. Um, he's got this really, really wonderful way of looking at, uh, you know, British history, and I think an all important one, one that many people are starting to do. Where it's like, how do we incorporate all these stories? Um, he was an absolute delight to have on the podcast. I really, really enjoyed uh, this conversation, and uh, so I hope folks are, get out there and get his book. Uh, as always, you can listen to this conversation and all other conversations uh, at Converging Dialogues at Substack.com. Uh, it's also on YouTube, so get over there, uh, subscribe, follow, and uh, share widely. And so, now I bring you David Beavers. I'm here with David Beavers. David, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm uh, looking forward to talking with you. Thanks for having me. Very exciting. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah. No, no, of, of course. Absolutely. You have written a, uh, a wonderful book. It's called The Great Defiance, How the World Took on the British Empire. Uh, and it's it's wonderful. It's a, it's a history most often don't get. Um, and you traverse basically lots of different continents here. Uh, before we get into the book, uh, just tell us uh, kind of a thumbnail sketch of uh, who you are, uh, what your background's in professionally, and uh, what you're uh, currently thinking about and up to. 
Yeah, well, thank you again. Um, so um, I'm a lecturer in early modern history at the University of Bangor in Wales here in the UK. Um, and um, I do my research mostly on the British Empire, specialisms in the East India Company, which was the sort of beginning of the British Empire in places like India and the rest of Asia. Um, and um, uh, this is my second book, previous book on the origins of the British Empire in Asia with Cambridge University Press. Um, and and so this, this the great Defiance is the first book I've written for a wider audience. So it's not just for you know, students and professors instead, rather it's for you know, non-specialists and it should be available in all good bookshops. Um, and, and hopefully I'm, I'm working on next book, which may or may not be a follow-up taking the story into the Victorian period, the 19th and early 20th centuries, when it's really the height of the British Empire. And you know, see these maps of imperial pink splashed everywhere and the, the empire upon which the sun never set. But even then there are stories of indigenous and non European power. So that's something exciting. That's kind of beyond my particular area. So I'm, I'm really enjoying getting into all that. I feel like a student again almost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, 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 must, I must ask. I mean, I'm sure you have uh, lots of thoughts about the coronation and uh, you, you have a new king over there now. <laughs> no, I don't have any thoughts. <laughs> yes, I do have thoughts. I know yes. some people are kind of divided on it. Some people like the tradition and, you know, whatever, but then other people are very anti-monarchy uh uh and so um yeah i mean it, it's an interesting time i guess you guys are in a moment of transition it's, it's a really interesting time because you know it's been an interesting time around this particular topic anyway with you know black lives matter and you know in mm-hmm. the in the uk toppling of uh, slave trading statues and mm-hmm. um and then with the coronation it forcing us to have these conversations about you know, the study of the British Empire as a well-established academic discipline and you know, people have been publishing on it ever since the British Empire was um, was constructed but it's give, been given a real public spotlight and so the coronation is another example where the you know it's, it's great for people like me and see the British Empire in the news and people talking about it on TV but it, it's also a very contested history, mm-hmm. uh, especially for uh, not just British people, but people around the world and mm-hmm. uh, who are living in uh, parts of what we call the Commonwealth or even in former colonies. And, and that it's a quite a raw topic. And so I think the coronation couldn't escape being tangled up with that wider debate about the legacies of the British Empire. So, so yes, yeah, there are thoughts there. <laughs> <laughs> well, as a, as a, as a former uh, colonist, I guess, over here across the <laughs> pond, I don't have too many opinions about it. I think uh, I think I'm, I'm somewhere in between, which doesn't really help anything. But I think traditions are really good and helpful. But I also think that um, uh, you know having a, a a royalty just feels pretty antiquated at this point. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because we we say it's a tradition, but then you think about coronation. The last one was seventy years ago, and so it's almost right. like yeah. well, we you know we we regurgitate these traditions, but actually for us it's all very new as well in a way and so it's what does a coronation in the 21st century look like and oh dear it looks very much like it used to and and what does that mean about the future of the monarchy yeah Mm -hmm. so it's yeah it's really interesting it's 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 very very interesting but yeah i I, uh i am i am i am a little sympathetic to people that are are kind of resistant to it i mean i probably if 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 i lived uh in the uk i probably would be too it's a it's a a lot of a lot of money goes to (laughs) well i mean if you think about 200 million on a coronation during a cost of living crisis that's hard hard for anyone to stomach yes yes. uh so yeah let's uh practically (laughs) it's it doesn't feel great at the very least um (laughs) okay so I guess tell us about the about the book. Um, I mean, we'll 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 talk about 
uh, different types of uh, uh, periods, I guess, in the in the empire. But I guess um, people have this image of the British Empire as being great and commanding for so long, uh, even as you mentioned, kind of at the start, even up until the 20th century and 21st century, I guess. Um, why do we have, I guess, this standard view, uh, and why do we've have we ignored other sides of that story? Is it just because, you know, whoever's the winner or whoever's triumphant, they kind of write the story, or why do we not talk about uh, that story from other perspectives, from people like, you know, former colonies or the people in the Commonwealth or Indigenous groups? Why why would we neglect that part of the story? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a yeah, I mean, it's such a uh, important but big question. I think there's just so many different aspects to it. I mean, I think, um, yes, you're right. I think um, it's that somewhat cliche of, you know, the victors uh, write uh, history. And so a lot of the, um, uh, you know, archival sources that have come down to us um, are those written by, you know, white Europeans. And, um, and that has given us a very narrow view of the, emergence and expansion of the british empire and the way it was maintained and even in its decline and its and its in decolonization at the end you know these were documents that were being produced by but also preserved by british colonial officials and so what what is preserved and what isn't preserved is left off with half a, a picture and you know a very famous example uh you know this is kenya with the mau mau rebellion and a lot of we know a lot of documents were destroyed and a lot were classified and they've only recently come to light so um and so in the acquisition of archives you know what documents have been preserved and then you know what ones haven't um but also yeah the perspective of those recording events in the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries are uh, are from the a colonial point of view so i think that's that's a kind of very obvious answer um to it but i think there's also a very modern reason why we don't often talk about uh, the the kind of other uh, you know from from the perspective of of non-europeans and indigenous people and for looking at the kind of grislier aspects of the british empire and that modern one is that the story of the british empire has become so intimately bound up with british and european identity you know we're not talking you know in, uh, britain wasn't it wasn't particular uh, to have an empire to the British. Most European countries had, if not a full-on empire, then some kind of overseas colonial presence. Uh, you know, even countries like Denmark and Sweden. Um, and so, um, and, I, and I think that the legacies of of the European empires have, have become part of European identity. And so, for the case of uh, Britain, which is you know what I specialise in, um, to challenge rather kind of sacrosanct narratives of the contribution Britain made to the modern world, um, English language, democracy, you know, um, industrialization, the rule of law. I'm going to put that in uh, in uh, speech quotes there. Um, uh, is to to challenge the the supposed good that that you know Britain should be proud of its history. And again, that's not particular to Britain. You know, in the United States, for example, it's a highly contested idea about history and how we should consume it. Whether it should be there to reinforce our sense of identity and patriotism, or you know, whether we should treat history as we treat many disciplines as something to be scrutinized and, and to be approached critically and to be understood rather than celebrated and so for um people uh in uh, you know today in the uk i think that to perhaps suggest the british empire was a bad thing or certainly that it led to you know large-scale loss of life uh, the displacement of people their disenfranchisement and their exploitation 
is to live up to a very difficult truth to swallow, which is that you know we're not history is not a a, a you know is not looking back and celebrating. It can also be like contemporary and you know and like today a very complex place full of good and bad and so that's difficult when you know identities become so entrenched um and we've considered the british empire for so long to be such a a a force for good and in some ways rehabilitated by its role in the second world war when britain and the empire stood alone against nazi germany that's a kind of fantastic rehabilitation story um and therefore if you're challenging you know the British Empire's history. In a way, you challenge that um, narrative of um, you know defeating Nazism and uh, contributing to you know the modern world through you know the United Nations and, and things like that. So I think it's become so contested and and so uh, politicized because you're challenging people's sense of identity. Mm-hmm. And so yes, it comes from that skewed perspective of the archives and the documents that have been handed down from a British perspective. Um, but it's also about yeah understanding the legacies and and what that means for us and uh, and our history today so i think that um it mostly and especially when we talk about it in the public sphere politicians or on tv or or journalists that they tend to reinforce and latch on to those positive narratives um and those that that in some way trying to become more critical and um and show the bad of the british empire somehow are unpatriotic or are you know to use contemporary uh, derogatory phrases such as you know woke and um and and so yeah that's where the contention lies and i i think that despite the fact that as historians we've been looking at the bad side of empire for five decades uh, there's a misconception that this is a new thing historians mm-hmm. are doing when it's not it's got a very long history so I think that we have, you know, outside of academia, I think we have a real challenge on our hands to get people to to talk honestly and critically about the history of empire. You know, empires are constructs of coercion and control and exploitation. They're not, uh, you know, consensual constructs of collaboration and and uh, um, and participation. Uh, that that would not be an empire. That would be something as a confederation or you know, a state. And so, if we take our starting point for that, you know, of course, the history of empires will be full of bloodshed and you know and and coercion and violence. That's it's a there's nothing wrong with admitting that. And it doesn't necessarily prevent you from saying that Britain did you know good things and the empire in defeating you know Nazi Germany in the 20th century or even in the 19th century. Um uh, but yeah, I think that that's so that's the big challenge we've got on our hands today as historians of empire. Yeah, I think it's interesting. <clears throat> one of the things that attracted me to your book was just that was one of the things is is we we get this. We get um when you learn things in in you know primary or even secondary schooling, you have this sort of kind of uh, cohesive narrative of okay, this is what happened, right? Here's the main story, right? You know, somebody begat somebody, or somebody conquered somebody, or somebody, you know, whatever. And I think you say throughout the book, those things aren't necessarily inaccurate. It's just the fact that we've neglected other stories in that period and i think that there's a there's obviously i think a probably with with many historians i've i've talked to here there's a kind of push pull of this kind of you know not re re uh, writing history but a type of or you know this revisionist history but that there's what does history look like when you have 
multiple perspectives or points of view there. Well, yes, you know, there's many wonderful things about the British Empire. You know, as you're mentioning, a clear example is, um, you know, I mean, a critical key essential role of of defeating, you know, Nazis in World War II. Um, that's wonderful. Um, and it's and it's a, and it's an interesting thing though, is, you know, a couple of years, you know, past couple of years, some people said, well, well, maybe, maybe we don't like Churchill anymore because you know he was a racist and a bigot. It's like, well, I mean, two yes, but but two things are true at the same time, right? And I think yeah, that's that's hard for people to kind of sit with where it's like, well, at the time, um, that probably wasn't too abnormal, um, or wasn't frowned upon, whether you know the moral uh aspects of it are obviously wrong in any period. But I think that there is something about knowing things in context. Um and also saying like, yeah, we can condemn him for that, but we can also prop him up for <laughs> making sure that you know, England wasn't run over by Nazi Germany. So I think I think it's for the for most people, I mean, people are complicated, things are complicated, and it can be really hard for people to hold two things in their head at once. Um, and so one of the things that's really wonderful about your book is you're basically doing that. You're saying, well, you don't have to take away all the stuff about the British Empire. But you do have to understand, here are some other stories, here are some ways people resisted this, and both can be true at the same time. And both yeah. we can hold both things in our head at the same time. Is, 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 that, is that right? Is that kind of the tenor of what yeah, you're Yeah, I think at? so. I mean, to a degree, I mean, I think we have to be somewhat careful of, I mean, what, particularly to the British Empire, this debate has emerged that, you know, it's called the balance sheet approach, mm-hmm. where... That the good invalidates the bad, and that's yeah. a, a line. And sadly, you know, some uh, not really historians, and theologians, and political mm-hmm. economists, and <laughs> very history adjacent fields, but uh, not historians have taken that. You know, it's sort of like, oh yeah, famine bad, but hey, cricket, and it's kind of like, well, those two don't cancel one each other out. You know, you know, terrible, you know, political constructs like empires, uh, you know, uh, can you know produce positive things, but. Mm-hmm. I think, we, yeah, we still need to understand them in the framework of, you know, that's that's rarely do they go out of their way to do nice things. So even if you think about yeah, another yeah. one that's, you know, for reference is, is rail, railways and mm-hmm. look at the railways, you know, but it's, well, railways were never constructed for the people of India, for example. They were constructed right. to move British troops around and and mm-hmm. to, you know, um, you know, to to export raw materials better. Incidentally, yes, it improved people's lives um, right. and helped uh, to an extent um, economic growth. But but I think we always must take our understanding of that. And so, you know, Churchill is, is a really is a really good example because, yeah, there's been, a um, I think, a welcome revisionist mm-hmm. approach to Churchill, understanding him within his context of, um, of that he's a, he's, you know, he's an arch imperialist, Churchill. You know, he was there, at, um, you know, in, in Sudan, done at the Battle of Omdurman where as a war correspondent um you know as 12,000 uh, Mahdist uh, Sudanese uh, people were mowed down by um by Gatling guns and you know he was in South Africa in the Boer War and on the northwest frontier in India he, he you know he's a product of the British Empire and so his approach to the Second World War was and if you you know read his speeches or listen to his speeches he always invokes it's the it's not Britain it's the British Empire Britain and the Empire against Nazi Germany so you can see this as you know if he wants to preserve the Empire and um and a part of you know his strategy um against the Nazis was to to invoke that and but yeah but that doesn't necessarily invalidate that he helped Britain 
uh, defeat Nazi Germany, mm-hmm. like the way it should invalidate that the Soviet Union helped defeat Nazi Germany. But mm-hmm. we wouldn't allow that to rehabilitate the Soviet Union as a political entity at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the the and so, but you know, putting it back to the book, I guess is yeah, you're right. It's about saying that there are these you know, a multitude of stories, and and that if you shed light on them and you bring those to the fore, you're not losing any of those traditional narratives mm-hmm. of the British Empire. You're simply just making a more comprehensive picture um as in any particular you know even today you know any event there are when there's more than a single person involved there will be multiple perspectives and which perspective is right or wrong in a way doesn't matter you're just telling a fuller story it's 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 funny because people i'm sure you maybe you've gotten some of this i've talked to other folks with you know history here in the united states post 1776 (laughs) um people really resist that it's it's like it's almost like you're changing their bedtime stories almost like no no you can't what no oh god now we got to talk about all of this and like ah what are you doing like yeah and and like that's not true or you're trying to moralize history people get really animated about this and 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 i and i guess i i guess i could understand some of it i mean sure there's bad faith actors out there that you know are really trying to you know, change things or, you know, have, you know, spread inaccuracies, but I don't really understand aside from the, I think what you're saying, the identity piece or the familiarity of it. I don't really understand why people have resistance to hearing things that have, I mean, what, what do you just, I guess, briefly, here, I, what do you think of that I, resistance? Yeah, I do. I, and I, I know what you mean because I came to uh, my enjoyment of history um during my undergraduate and then my interest in the british empire through i mean what we call boys own stories those fantastic stories of imperial heroes um and their kind of adventures and i found that all very exciting then when i studied history and and then did research in the british empire and okay i know that well that's that's a that's a fantasy and that's a you know um that's that's incorrect these are not heroes running around having adventures you know they're imperialists uh you know um as part of uh, an agenda to expand the British but that didn't change in fact that deepened my interest in the history i found that a far more complex and fascinating story so maybe that people like you said uh, they you know do we resist overly complex understandings of things is it the simplicity of these traditional narratives good versus bad and mm-hmm. uh you know modern progress over uncivil that that people cherish because they're easy explanations for yeah. understanding uh, not just their own history and their identity and their place in the world today and then when you know you complicate that story then you force them to have a kind of reckoning um that you know traditional attitudes that spin out of those simplistic histories are no longer sort of able to cling on to and, and to deploy and you know i think people like when we look at ourselves and our behavior and you know we don't we, we don't really want to have a reckoning you know and and we resist that and because when i cling to this idea you know that certain narratives we have about ourselves so, so i think any any anything that forces us to uh be more introspective um and to understand the nuances and, and the complexities of our history and therefore our identity and how we understand the world that's i think there's there's a certain section of society and i think in a way we may overblow this i think more people than not welcome you know revisionist mm. histories and mm. uh welcome you know introspections about society and i think that's that's probably more the case but there does seem to be 
uh, a vocal uh, crowd of people that that yeah don't want that to be true and i wonder whether it's the simplicity that they enjoy um and you know unfortunately i mean that's what good education does it helps us to uh, leave those simple almost like you said bedtime stories behind and this is the real world and real world things are complex and Mm -hmm. there are you can't just say this is the right way there are multiple different stories and opinions and perspectives and we have to accommodate them and if we don't in life then you know we don't establish good relationships or good understandings of people and places and events and i think that to, to to embrace that and to to abandon those simple childhood stories is it's maturing it's growing and i think that you know good scholarship forces uh, uneducated or uh, non-specialist readers to hopefully do that and oh okay well you know that wasn't what i thought about the british empire but yeah mm-hmm. this is just as interesting and just as meaningful hopefully mm-hmm. yeah no I, I agree with everything you're saying there and i think that that's i think that's what's important so you start with uh, you start with so the, I should say the, the period you 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 uh, you focus on is is fifteen hundred to eighteen hundred, and you start with the the Irish. You know, the Irish have obviously a long history of various conflicts, um, and you, you talk about during this period about the they fought back against the advances of colonialism from Elizabeth the um, First. I guess one 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 question I have here is. So we kind of know with a lot of these stories, but I guess with the Irish in particular, we, we know the end of the story here, right? We know that what ends up happening. Why did you decide to take the snapshot from this period of the resistance of the Irish against of the British Empire at this time um, and, and, and how they were able to, to initially have some resistance uh, and why that's important for the story, even if there is eventual colonization? Why is is that part of the story for them in particular uh, instructive? Yeah, I think that I, I I mean this is something I did consciously because in the histories of the British Empire and of Britain from from this period we often just skip past Ireland. Ireland is our our nearest neighbour and um and what happens very early on Ireland is uh, turned into a, a kingdom and therefore becomes almost part of domestic. English history. And so we fold it into that like we do Wales and then later Scotland. Um, and and yet, you know, long before it is completely colonised and conquered and and governed as another realm of of the British monarchs, it's it, it's it's not. It's a it's a different country, one that yeah. the English really, or I should say Anglo-Normans, have been attempting to conquer almost immediately the moment after the Norman invasion. And so even from the 12th century onwards. Ireland, the English had tried to colonise Ireland and struggled to do so. And three, four hundred years later, it's had little success. Um, and and so in many histories of British, that's just the island is just ignored. And yet I think what we see Ireland is the moment when the English are striking out across the world uh, into the Mediterranean, across the Atlantic to the Americas and the Caribbean, down the west coast of Africa and eventually into the Indian Ocean and beyond. Um at the very same time, the English are grappling with perhaps their biggest um, uh, struggle. Ireland, and when we think of the Elizabethan period, we think of the war against Philip II of Spain and the Spanish Armadas. And, uh, mm-hmm. But actually, the um, the colonisation of Ireland, or the struggle to colonise Ireland, I should say, at this time, has consumed far more lives and and treasure than all of English foreign policy and colonial adventures 
pretty much combined. And so it was really interesting for me to take the starting point of the story of the British Empire, not from here to striking out and starting to colonise, but actually already involved in this sort of colonial quagmire in which it was failing as much as it, as it was succeeding. And so for me, that's the a fantastic point if we want to shed light on the resistance to the British Empire is that at the very beginning, um, it, it was already involved in a centuries-long uh, process. And, um, you know, it, it becomes almost like a, a laboratory for English colonialism elsewhere. So the mm. The, the approaches the English take, the sort of resistance they encounter, their response to that. Um, we see that then play out elsewhere in North America, the Caribbean, and um, wherever there's large-scale colonization. And and yeah, it's not a it's not a, a linear narrative of English success, so quite the contrary. Um, it's very up, down, up, down, and to the point where England's almost completely conquered Ireland, then suddenly this major nine years war breaks out and it looks as though English presence is going to entirely evaporate and they're going to be pushed back across the RSC. Uh, and that drags on for years and years. And um, But even then, once political independence of the Irish lords are crushed, you've got decades of you know failure to really occupy um, Ireland on any kind of significant scale or to make it profitable or even to um which was one of the key aims of the english is to try and convert the irish culturally and religiously um that's a complete failure so i thought a great point to start a story that we traditionally think of as a, a relentless rise and a triumphant narrative is to start with that failure and that the, the strategies that they are uh, uh attempting to adopt in ireland are those you know that are that just show that actually the point that we start with the English story is one of weakness mm. and one of strength in the non-European or indigenous world. And so I thought that really it was a good way to kick off a story that mm-hmm. really reverses the dynamic that we often associate with the rise of the British Empire. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, I, I didn't, again, I know various points of uh, of, of uh, the Irish history uh, and they have, they definitely resist uh, mm. a lot of with with each other and with other nations and so yeah. i think it's i think it was a, a good bit of the story to 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 kind of show that i, I would agree and what so you, but what i what i also say i'm sorry Chuck, what, but yeah. what i thought is kind of obscene situations because ireland is you know our our, our neighbor and obviously still mm-hmm. northern ireland is part of the united kingdom mm-hmm. and and therefore our histories are intimately bound up with one another sure. um there is such little Irish history taught in um, schools in the UK. We know it's not it's not present in uh, you know a high school level or a college level. The amount of university courses on Irish history are, are minuscule, is a handful. And I so just think that that's it gets, just it, it gets subsumed under like United Kingdom British that's right. history, Ab- right? Absolutely, yeah, it's not yeah. Its yeah. It becomes yeah. domesticated. Um, and is that, is, is that true in Wales as well? Um, or, well, or is that different? Uh, yes, no, that's not different. Um, what I would say is within Wales itself, there's there's been a big push in recent decades for um, for Welsh history to be studied on its own. And so I'm, I teach at the University of Bangor, where that's a very vibrant part of the teaching and scholarship done there. So, but across the rest of the United Kingdom, yeah, no, it's you know it's part of the Tudors, for example, or uh, you know the Plantagenet. So, and you know when. And, and I think, but what's most important about Ireland is that unlike Wales, for example, um, you know, Ireland eventually regains, or most of Ireland, I should say, regains its independence and mm-hmm. you know, has now an, an independent history. And I think that made that even more boggling to me. Um, yeah. Whereas, you know, Wales remains part of the United Kingdom, or I should say the Kingdom of England and Wales. And it kind of makes sense that that's more domesticated in terms of its history. Um, 
But for Ireland, no, that doesn't even make sense. So for me, it was also like, let's start in a completely unfamiliar place, but one that should be, you know, that should not be unfamiliar. It should be, we should all know this history. But even I, you know, a historian of early modern colonialism, was, you know, was, was, I knew uh, a fair bit about it, but the more I researched and wrote about it, I just thought it was really the epic of one of the big epic stories of, of the early uh, British Empire. Mm, yeah. So let's we'll move across the pond uh, here in the the former colonies, the United States. Uh, so, um, I guess there's there's a few a few themes here. Um, you talk about uh, Raleigh. You talk about Gilbert. You talk about their greed, and I guess generally for them and for other folks that have come here from from uh, United Kingdom, um, what was what was the I guess the motives or or intentions for truly coming here. So obviously you have, you know, Columbus, you know, in the modern era, I mean, he wasn't the first to, to, to find a new world. I mean, I think the Vikings get that credit. I think they still get that credit. Uh, but, you know, he was the one that, you know, kind of, you know, Hispaniola and then you know, the Caribbean and, and then, you know, but, but by the time we get to, you know, the 16th and 17th century, you know, people have been kind of saying, Hey, what's going on over here? What, was it all just like let's rape and pillage, or was it just kind of like let's try and and see what we can do over here and make it our own, or how do we coordinate? What what was the I guess as best we understand mm. the starting point of the intentions of coming here to to the new world, and then did that change at some point, or what was I guess the I guess the original starting line? Yeah, I think um, I think it's difficult to decouple those two things. Uh, you know, it's, you know, come over here and let's see what's happening. To you know, rape and pillaging, because there, there's quite a, not, a lot of knowledge. By the time you know the English arrive, there's actually quite a lot of knowledge circulating in Europe about mm. the Americas and the Caribbean um, um, from the Spanish and the Portuguese. Um, but even before sort of formal English colonization. Uh, you know, decades of privateering and um, and things like that, and so the English had kind of a good knowledge of 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 well, not necessarily good knowledge, but they had knowledge of the people that lived there and the sort of ecosystems and the geography, um, and certainly of the resources. Um, not entirely accurate. So there was a in the 1570s. One of the things that drew uh, uh, Sir Humphrey Gilbert across, who we think of as an explorer, but was intimately bound up with atrocities in Ireland. So I think it's better to think of him as a colonist. Um, was this Portuguese uh, sort of um, rumor that there was a kind of land of gold in North America? And that you know the streets were paved with gold, and it was an, another sort of gold mine like South America uh, at that time was for the Spanish, and that, um, and so there was this this pool of mineral riches because we we also have to remember that um, that England is kind of quite an impoverished place at the end of the 16th and uh, into the 17th century. There are food torches in the reign of Elizabeth that cause kind of riots and uprisings. Um, its main export wool or or, or, uh, or cloth is depressed and in need of new markets. Um, and um, there's a lot of poverty um, and religious persecution and tolerance. And, and so um, the kind of pool in a way was, was England trying to compensate for its, uh, for its poverty and its, you know, irrelevance and to kind of look at its, its European neighbours who were, you know, somewhere like, Portugal, for example, uh, not a terribly wealthy place before, but you know, once it established itself in North America and West Africa and into Asia, it eventually it becomes one of Europe's early superpowers in terms of, 
you know, the wealth it was importing. Um, and so England sort of looks on quite envious. And so it is pulled across the Atlantic early on, uh, mostly on the uh, coattails of the Spanish and Portuguese, um, because, you know, a lot of the privateering raids, such as, you know, Francis Drake's about capturing the wealth that the Spanish are um are bringing back from uh, the americas and so stories of of you know lands of gold uh one of the key ways to finance those early voyages to attract investors so it is about you know mineral wealth and um and uh, enriching england that's part of it but the other part that they that they knew it wasn't an empty land this, this kind of um um contemporary uh, the contemporaneous to the time this idea that North America was you know, a wild, you know, wild place, and that it was um, uh, empty. And, and so, when the earliest English colonists arrive, the way they write home about it is that they they describe a Garden of Eden, one that's you know paradise. Um, um, it's flora and fauna, but there's no mention really of people being there. And the people are there. And the English, when they land, um, they are landing in quite crowded estuaries full of indigenous American you know uh villages and uh you know the the sounds and the rivers are you know crowded with fishing weirs and and canoes and and so this is a, a populated not not populated as heavily as in europe um take a place like carolina for example that you know all of the carolinas today north and south carolina there's perhaps 15,000 to 20,000 people living on the coastal region so it's a lightly populated lab but they knew that people were there and so um then to apply for a charter to colonize to set up um colonies that would extract that wealth and, and things like that there is an acceptance that these people will have to be dealt with and that they would have to be displaced or make room for the English. Um, and so, it, you know, even if the intention wasn't let's go to America and kill a bunch of indigenous people and take over the idea of um, applying for a charter to acquire often like a six, seven hundred mile stretch of territory from you know, South Carolina all the way to, um, you know, what today we would sort of say was Massachusetts. Um, that you you would have you would know you'd be displacing people that this was not a virginia but it was in fact the algonquin you know country of seneca moco or osamacomac um and so yeah i think those two things are bound up you can't separate the the kind of um, you know commercial or mineral intentions of the english to come over and get rich with the fact that to do that you will have to um you know displace people and make some kind of space for yourself and i think that even if there's no master plan to take over indigenous america i think that most people were happy to go over there and yeah and to to force indigenous people to um you know to give them food or to you know um to be displaced from the territory that the english coveted and so i think that uh, in that period of colonialism when the spanish and the portuguese the dutch and, and the english that those two things were that, that you could not separate them even if you say we just want to go there and mine the gold and the minerals well that you need indigenous labor you know you need a system of exploitation extraction those are colonial processes that will inevitably lead to violence and displacement and things like that. i guess <clears throat> there's two questions here which i'm i'm gonna try and remove the moral aspect of it for a minute um so just my here's my caveat just in case anybody's <laughs> uh, c confused so obviously i think that i think <laughs> raping and pillaging and displacing and exploiting any people groups is uh you know an absolute catastrophe and i don't think those things should be done uh anywhere past or present um 
I guess from the perspective at the time of the empire or the British empire was two things. So if it's seen from the perspective of the empire, Hey, listen, if we don't do this, the Spanish or the Portuguese are, and there are rivals, there are threats there. We have to get a foothold here. I would, I would assume that's part of it. And then second, I mean, if if you come to a place, so, so let's set aside the 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 mineral and the 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 goods, the natural resources, things like that, aside for a minute. And you see a vast country, uh, or world, or or place, and it is, I um, let's say it's. Uh, this sounds bad, but just just for this the the comparison here underdeveloped or according to them there's not as or it's not as developed as as maybe what the the british uh, were familiar with or home or there's a lot of potential for development or 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 to to own it i mean how do we how do we square those things so like i don't think any of these white dudes that come from england with you know the the the, the authority of the the monarchy or whatever behind them are going to say, well, we came here, it's nice, but there's people living there and we're going to leave them alone and we're not going to come back. How do we, I don't think there, or, you know what, let's, let's, let's try to, you know, create all of these documents and we coexist and live right beside them in a really diverse, equitable and inclusive way. It's <laughs> never going to happen. So how do we, how do we hold these two things? I guess factually, and and I'm I'm trying to stay away from the moral aspect because that makes it all cloudy and murky and stuff. Because obviously it's wrong to do those things, but I think how do we understand that? I guess historically, mm, I think you know it's such a uh, so I understand the question and I understand why a lot of people would ask it, but I, I would say that for for me. Um, it's very difficult to, you know, when you say to understand it historically and not morally. Well, um, you know, we're humans and I don't necessarily think you always have to decouple the moralizing perspective. Like you said, we know those things are wrong, but then, you know, what are they supposed to do? Not do it. And it's sort of like, I, I guess what we need to think about here is what kind of metric are we using? Um, and mm. I think that in that particular period of time, uh, you know, you could loosely describe, you know, the, and this is what, and you're absolutely right, because this is what the English do, is they kind of devise this metric for how do we understand this mm -hmm. Virginia, this virgin land, mm -hmm. uh, this, 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 you know, yeah, this paradise that they've stumbled. Mm -hmm. You know, they call it a paradise, you know, the, 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 the waters are ravishing and the, you know, so. Um, and, and they, you see that in real time through the documents that they divide this metric to say, right, how can we excuse what we're about to do? How do we justify our presence here? One of that is through it's um, uh, in a way the English themselves are sort of spin this narrative that you know it's it's purely to you know attack the Spanish and colonies like Roanoke um, in Os uh, in uh, Osamacomet, which we would understand today as Carolinas. That partly that was financed to fought there to be a privateering base against the Spanish. So there's that sort of justification. This is all part of the kind of you know inter-European rivalry. But the other one is to say well. 
Um, how do we invalidate the claims of the people who live here? Mm-hmm. Um, and the metrics they devise are exactly the one you just mentioned, this idea of development of, of the country. Mm-hmm. So they're coming from what I guess we would describe as a kind of early kind of capitalist mentality mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. the productivity of the people that live there, the way that the land is been exploited and, and the extraction of wealth and, um, you know, the expansion of agriculture. And if these things are not done, then the people living there have no right and, and uh, over the land. And therefore, the land is not populated. These people, they're here, but they're not, they don't own the land. Um, and I think that's a fantastic um, a perspective to understand because you can find, you can see the English literally clawing around for some kind of justification for how do we resist coming in and conquering this place? Because, you know, look at it. Oh my gosh. And, and so they write back and they, you know, and they say that these people have not developed the land. And, and I think um, uh, uh, one of the colonists, um, uh, John Smith describes Virginia as um, as a desert. Um, in the early modern sense, deserts were often described uh, as a way to describe unproductive or uh, undeveloped places, not in the kind of sand way we would understand today. Um, and he describes it as yeah, as as a desert that that just a powerful of Englishmen could cultivate and bring into production. And so, when you take that European measure that, and you see how utterly that contrasts with the with the understanding of indigenous people with the land in which the land was something to live from, but also to live in harmony with. So, you know, somewhere like, um, um, Ossa Macomet, Carolinas, um, they were not particularly abundant with food or, or natural resources. As the English find out, there is no gold there. There's a kind of soft copper that they find particularly, uh, unvaluable. Um, and so, um, and but the indigenous people, it's not a land of plenty or there's not a massive bounty, but they just find a way to extract what they need from the land to survive. They, they have no, there's no surplus, there's no kind of wealth in resources. Um, and, you know, contrary to what the English say, that, you know, it is developed to an extent, there's agricultural farming, uh, you know, there's fishing weirs, there's, um, there is some mining, there's manufacturing of certain goods, there are even bridges and paths that have been cleared, the forest is burnt down to cultivate it and to create, you know, um, a, a more fertile land in later seasons. And so they are engaged with the land and they're exploiting it, but only in the sense of being able to live and survive and have what they need. And so th- when you understand those two metrics are so completely different, one is very kind of exploitative, extractive mm-hmm. capitalist mentality as a way of justifying ownership of the land. And the other one is about, you know, living with the land and engagement. If it, a lot of reasons why the English are coming over in the early 17th centuries, because England's forests have been stripped, bare, there's overcrowding and poverty, vagrancy has become a problem. They're having to find they've sort of in a way exhausted England having to look elsewhere for their wealth and growth economic growth and so you see these two things as and so it's kind of completely irreconcilable and 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 the idea then that why would the English not do it the other Europeans are doing it and you know this if they don't do it they're going to lose out that may be true but I don't think in any kind of way it necessarily removes the fact that that was still a very, you know, um, imperialist colonial mindset, uh, one in which the Algonquin, for example, do not have. They have paramount chiefdoms. So in Virginia, you know, with perhaps kind of imperial ambitions to dominate surrounding tribes. But even then, that relationship is often based more on kinship and vassalage than it is on hegemony or dominance or exploitation. Um, and so I, I just think it's a kind of completely like a, a quantum leap in understanding where these different groups are coming from uh, and so what so what kind of is 
makes me cringe a little bit is when is when some people sort of say well it's a kind of clash of civilizations yeah. well um yeah. <laughs> it's okay we could describe a lot of situations like that and i and i think that they wouldn't they wouldn't suit our traditional narratives you, you know you wouldn't describe you know nazi germany and the fight as a clash of because mm. they're different value systems and different systems yeah. to understand you know the land if you think about hitler's policies towards eastern europe and russia uh and this idea of living space um and so there's also um increasingly a racial component of this um mm-hmm. and you know a good example is uh is the early accounts of uh indigenous american people the algonquin of, of uh, the East Coast um, is that you get this this obsession by Europeans of recording the bodies of indigenous people and the mm-hmm. colour of their skin and the, their hair and their shape and and it's like it permeates a lot of the early accounts and you just think you know come on get on with it and uh, but they're obsessed with um, trying to and, and, and so again you sort of see in real time that I tend to kind of racialize these groups and understand the difference between themselves and them and in doing so that allows them um uh, to to yeah to justify well why can't we come in and take it um well, and there's so a, there's a type of othering there that's going there on. is a type of othering now i don't think it's as prominent early on in the late late 16th early 17th century it's much more prominent in the 18th century especially with large-scale transatlantic uh slavery but even early on even in ireland uh elizabeth calls one of the prominent irish chiefs her her, her black irishman so it's this kind of othering this distinction between the english that allows them to justify their behavior so so i, I take understand your question um uh, if you kind of strip the morality of it what are the english not supposed to conquer these places um but i don't i don't necessarily think you should decouple the morality no 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 i don't don't think you should no i don't don't think you should i i I, only for 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 uh organizational sake of 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 course but then that in a way i think in a sense doesn't allow us to understand the different values and the cultures of these people because um you know uh, uh you know for example in Ireland, which is a heavily populated, yeah, there's something perhaps over one million people in Ireland at the time of the Elizabethan conquest. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the English who earlier went to Ireland had actually converted to uh, Gaelic Irish culture and adopted Irish names and fashion and married Irish men and women um, and necessarily don't see themselves as culturally superior. So even in this densely populated land with established kingdoms and systems, the, the English still turn up and and and, and conquer and displace people and disenfranchise them and exploit them and so in many ways it's very similar to what's going on in america and i think that you have to understand within this colonial mindset of hegemony or dominance and exploitation and um i i don't so whilst the kind of comparison with well other europeans might do it as well um that, that doesn't work in ireland for example um it does uh, and i think another way to put this in context if you look in places like asia or the mediterranean where there are the early modern world superpowers the mughal empire in india mm-hmm, the ottoman mm-hmm. empire and um uh in the mediterranean north africa um and 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 you suddenly see the english very different dynamic where they're very constrained and they have to mm-hmm. behave themselves and be very so careful about yeah, very different. Um, and and so I think it's also a question of power as well, empowering that. In in the Atlantic, in North America and the Caribbean, the English see themselves as more powerful and, and able to pursue their their uh, ambitious policies for exploitation and, and colonization. The only thing that stops them in places like Asia and Mediterranean is that they can't. Then when they try it, they get a swift uh, wallop. Yeah. So 
So, yeah, it's an interesting question, and I understand the framing, but I think that the framing doesn't necessarily help if we strip back and say, let's just historicise it. Well, to historicise it, you have to understand the different value systems of these people. The, 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 I, I totally agree with what you're saying. I, I have The hard thing I have with this, well, there's this concept, I think, of, um, of sovereignty, right? Of, you know, essentially... It's not, you know, who gets here first and then, you know, you, you, you know, that you're the winner, right? <laughs> I don't think it's entirely that. Um, maybe there's some bit of that, but I think that for thousands of years, you had, uh, you know, if you go all the way back to when folks, you know, walked across the Bering Strait, as the story goes, um, and folks came, you know, here to, to, to the Americas, North, Central, and South America and the Caribbean, um, they had been, inhabiting this continent for thousands of years um you know it that's that's i mean i think if you have this idea of sovereignty i think they you know they have it for <laughs> for sure and i think i, I think i mean I, the, the hard thing about this is is that <clears throat> it's two things i guess again at the same time of I think morally, so what you're saying is uh, it's true. I don't think we should we should strip the moral aspect of it. Uh, things are wrong when they're wrong. It doesn't matter necessarily of when it's wrong. Uh, it's important the context and time, but I think you can look at any civilization. You can look at the Sumerians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Egyptians, the Romans, mm. <laughs> so on and so forth. We 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 we've been doing this to each other as a human race for millennia. Mm. Um, so that's true. Obviously, it looks different, kind of what you're saying with the uh, the Mongol Empire uh, and how they did things was very different than how indigenous folks uh, did things here for thousands of years. But to me, that just shows the diversity of humans. That just shows and 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 contextualized within their terrain. So you know, in the steppe, in the Silk Roads, all those things, right? It's it's much different than you know, the, you know, wild and wonderful, you know, America is whatever you want to describe it. And, and I think that that's, in my view, it's, it's hard, right? Cause it's like, how do you hold people in the 17th century to a standard in that I have in the 21st century or other people do? And I don't think you, I don't think you can or sh should but I do think, I think you have to understand, I guess it's an interesting question. I don't have an answer to it of how do you have this, this humanity throughout time? We understand what it means to be human. Yeah. We've obviously had people since the Greeks and, and even before that, that have thought about what it means. You know, if you go back to obviously various uh, uh, religious literature that's showing like, you know, you know, you know, you know, love your neighbor and you know, Ten Commandments and various things from the Talmud and even things mm. from other other Mesopotamian kind of, like we have ways of trying to be kind to fellow humans. And I wonder, you know, at least on that ground, right? Because I I I think that it's in trying to be fair to everybody involved at the time, people only know what they know, right? At the time, like you yeah, can't sure. hold someone accountable to things they don't know or advancements in science and, you know, philosophy and thinking. But mm -hmm. I think the humanity of people 
at any point people know, hey, if I'm, you know, you know, raping somebody or if I'm beating somebody, that's not an okay thing to do, regardless mm -hmm. of what you're doing in whatever religion, whatever God, whatever empire, whatever name you're doing it in. And I wonder if we hold the the, the British that come here to, to the New World to that standard at the least. I wonder if it would be to say, hey, listen, like you you have to make attempts. You you must at the 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 moral human good to say, why don't you try to cohabitate with folks here? Why don't you try to live with them, have certain ways of 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 ruling, respecting their kind of sovereignty they have? I think those things at the least or bare minimum would be fair for people at that time. What what do you what do you think in terms of the, uh, so the I think, moral piece? Yeah. So so the argument you're sort of laying out or the perspective is is it's quite it's quite a popular one. And and I think that um, you know, this idea of presentism, this you know, projecting the present on the past as a way of understanding it. Um which so I mean, a, a few things I would I would say, especially in the context of understanding the British Empire, is that um, you know those the, you know, the values we hold high today and things we would regard as being bad, etc., were were not absent in the in the in the past. And so, if you look at so let's give the the context of um, North America. So when uh, when the English arrive um, in Virginia, for example, um, Seneca Moco is that the uh, paramount chiefdom of the Powhatans, which was the which was the main uh, territorial, political, cultural power in North America at the time. Um, and these foreigners, these they regard them as quite smelly and funny looking foreigners um, come and land in you know, uh, present uh, Jamestown and, on the James River. Then Wahoon Sunaka, who is the uh, paramount chief, invites them um, and um, and establishes trading links and um, you know welcomes them. Says, "Come move near my capital, and you know if you provide me with certain goods, then I will look after you." And, and he considers them his thirty first tribe. And um, and this guy John Smith uh, or John Smith, as he calls him, is seen as now chief of the English tribe. And so there's a there's a tendency, and that happens in New England as well. The establishment of the Connecticut and the Massachusetts and the Plymouth colonies is that Indigenous Americans, uh, the Wampanoags and or the Narragansetts, they they tend to try and incorporate the English into their existing networks of vassalage and trade. And that seems to be the default uh, approach that they have. And um, and so what happens certainly in Virginia with the Powhatans is the English um, uh, immediately fight back against their, you know, this, this this sort of attempt to create this cross-cultural connection with the English. And so within sort of a year and a half, they uh, uh, they try to reverse that vassalage and they try and forcefully crown Wahoon Sanaka with an English crown and scepter that's been sent out to make him a king of James the First in England and an English vassal. Um, they start to attack nearby villages and tribes for food. The English are starving. They've brought over a bunch of mineralogists rather than farmers to actually cultivate the land and sustain a colony. And and so very almost immediately the English turn that rather kind of open and and diplomatic and uh, a amiable relationship on its head, and instead replace that with violence and coercion and uh, and um, and exploitation. And so, um, uh, and then begins the first um, Powhatan uh, Anglo-Powhatan War. And so, um, uh, and the English often know that what they're doing is wrong by their even their current standards. And yeah. 
there's not it's not like what what are we doing you know this is mm-hmm. this is how yeah, we yeah, do it in the yeah. 17th century yeah. one because the resistance of the indigenous people tell them that what they're doing is wrong mm-hmm. um and so but also there are contemporary english people at the time that says that, that, that say oh my you know this is wrong we should be behaving like this so i've always been a slightly suspect of us saying well projecting our values well no because you know indigenous people have always cherished their lives and they've always oh, yeah. not wanted their villages to be burnt down or to be displaced from the land and so these are not modern values and so a really good example again go back to ireland which is happening at the same time as virginia and elsewhere is that one of the tactics the english use when they they're frustrated they can't um achieve a victory against um uh hugh o'neill who's uh, the earl of tyrone in ulster in north ireland is He's achieved a stunning victory against the English at the Battle of Yellowford, shattered the English presence. Um, but he's really evasive and the English find it difficult to engage with him after. And so one of the things they do is they well, will inflict atrocities on the civilian population and create a famine that will eventually force those chiefs and lords to submit to the English because their their families and their, their subjects are dying. And, and so this guy, Lord Mountjoy, sets about to engineer a, a, a human engineered famine, I should say. And very quickly, thousands of people start dropping down. There's these terrible descriptions of peasants coming out of the, the you know, the forest, uh, you know, like uh, anatomies of death is the is the words that the English use. And there's that one colonial official writes out and says, this is completely wrong. This is unbecoming of, of Christians. This is against all the laws of nature. Um, we shouldn't be doing this. Um, and so... Uh, and and also, I think that so so we have lots of written accounts of people saying at the time, this is not, you know, this is immoral. We should be doing this. The other one, uh, uh, you know, and then there's the obvious, you know, resistance to what the English are doing by non-European indigenous people, which you know should <laughs> very obviously tell the English that what they're doing is is immoral. But there's also um, the fact that, and I think this is really important, the English constantly try to justify their actions. Now, if you don't think yeah. you're doing anything wrong, why would you? Try and yeah. justify that action. Yeah, sure. so of some of the accounts we get are so hilariously contrived, mm-hmm. and they're often called out by domestic, you know, people in London or the, the king or the ministers, you know. Um, and we get, and when we unpick these these narratives that are spun by people on the spot who have done these terrible things, if they quickly they're tying themselves in knots to try and shift blame and to and to create a narrative in which indigenous people are at fault. And so it's very clear that at the time this is quite widespread consensus that yes, going over to a different country, displacing the people um, that it has to be justified, that it also has to be covered up, um, that it's um that the resistance itself is is, you know, sign enough that what you're doing is is not by the standards of the day and the fact that a lot of english people at the time also condemn it and that the same is so the big topic for this kind of framing is you know people have always been doing this and we shouldn't judge them by today's standards is that i think the trade in enslaved people is a really good example and um that's the one that it becomes really contested i think amongst people so there's always been slavery throughout history we we don't think slavery is good today but everyone enslaved people at the time and it wasn't just britain it's all the other europeans that were doing it. and it was you know 
African chiefs that were enslaving their own people and selling to Europeans. That's absolutely true. Slavery is not an invention of Europeans. Racial slavery is, of course. Uh, and, the slide, uh, and the size and the intensity and the industrialization of slavery under Europeans is unique. But slavery itself is not unique. And so that's the kind of argument we have. Um, Mm-hmm. And I would say to so that, and people say, you know, that that, that was that was the, the values of the day. And why should we judge people back then? And when we threw the the statue of Edward Colston, who was the director of the uh, Royal African Company, into Bristol Harbour a couple of years back, this is outcry. You know, you can't pull our history down. Well, first of all, statues are not history. They're, they commemorate and often done by later. We, we have the same. We have the same argument over here. Of course you do. Here. I know. <laughs> Absolutely. And the thing is, I, I would say to that is the idea that there were no people that thought slavery was wrong. Or, or yeah, I can yeah. think of 12 and a half million people at the time, mm-hmm. the enslaved who resisted slavery, who escaped slavery, who died in slavery, who would who opposed slavery. And so when we say things like we can't project our current, current models onto the Europeans that did those things, what we're saying is that, um, the, that, that the only morality that was legitimate back then was European morality. And the way they moralised what they were doing, but actually, if you just shift to which the book hopefully does shift to indigenous or non-European people, uh, who 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 those things were happening to, very quickly realised that well, their, their their values, their morals was not to be conquered, not to be exploited, not to be displaced, and not to be slaughtered. And so, why should their moral objections not count? Um, and so, I think that yes, I, I understand that framing. It's a popular one, but I think also in a way, it's kind of a the kind of regurgitation of of mm-hmm. a kind of a British mm-hmm. um, attempts to justify, you know, and that come down to us from the Victorians who used it for their forefathers, and then for in the 20th century, it's very popular. But you know, I think historians are just become a little bit more critical of that. That why why should the resistance of people who were enslaved why did that not count as contemporary morals and that's not a new we haven't invented that slavery is bad a lot of people back then so i think it's an interesting one um and but i don't necessarily think it holds up terribly well for uh uh for especially the study of the british empire and you know the other thing is yes that you know all empires non-european and indigenous you're engaged in things like slavery but you know as a scholar of the british empire sadly i can only sort of talk i know people say well what about the Mongol Empire, and I'm like, I have no idea. I'll have to Wikipedia <laughs> right. that. I can't tell you what I can tell you about this of the British Empire. And I and I have, you know, honestly, I've tried in this book to hopefully to 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 make you know, I talk a lot about the Portuguese and the Spanish and the Dutch and what mm-hmm, they were mm-hmm. doing as well. And, yeah, you do, yeah, yeah. You know, and talking about slavery, you know, I, I put you know, put the spotlight on the Dahomean slave traders, the West African yeah, slave yeah, traders. Yeah. But again, a bit like what you said at the very beginning, those two things can be true at the same time. Um, other people can be doing it. It could be a, 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 a just a, a age-long human trait, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there was no resistance to it and that it was not morally, you know, uh, reprehensible. Yeah, that's a very long answer. Sorry, I'm trying. No, 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 no. It's great. It's great. It's great. Strong so, feelings I, I, again. I, I, a bit like the coronation. You've had <laughs> no, no. I, I, I want to uh, just to just to be clear. Um, one of the things I really enjoy about the conversation is I don't. I don't hear a lot of conversations in this way often, which and that's not trying to give myself a compliment. That's trying to, that's trying, I'm trying to sort of, in a way, be a conduit for some of yes. these types of things because I, I perfectly agree with everything you're saying. And I think that that's important. Um, and I, and I, while you were giving your answer, I was thinking about really it's, 
of course people felt and and knew mm. that enslaving people and and pillaging places mm. is wrong and the people that were on the receiving end of that <laughs> their morals were like yeah. this is really wrong but it really does come down to power uh who has power at the time yes and there is obviously a perpetual and an institutional abuse of power of course i'm i'm sure you can find uh, again i'm not a world historian or anything like that but examples of various communities or cultures or kingdoms or empires maybe i don't know that aren't doing this at scale or they're not doing this for their entire existence or, you know, that they did it and then they corrected for it. And then they tried not to, or something. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I think the thing about that is, is that even for people in the British empire, right at the time, we're probably like, Hey, this is terrible. We shouldn't do this. Let's not yeah. do that. Yeah. And there's nothing they can do about it. I, it reminds me a little bit again, our, you know, as a former colonist state, we have a younger history. So but it reminds me of like all the abolitionists in the you know 1840s and 50s, where they were just like, look, this is terrible. This is in immoral. This is inhumane. We cannot keep adding states into our union with slavery in it. This is we have to eradicate this. We have to and and again, people do the same thing. Well, at the time, you know, that's that's how it was. That was part of our economy. That's what, you know, and it's like, that's a terrible thing. That's yeah. a terrible thing to say. We're, we're, this is what is, this is how it is. And, you know, and I, I think that that's, if that doesn't make necessary, like, who's on the right side or the wrong side of history, per se, I, I find those arguments uh, a little pedestrian but i mean i get the point of it but it is one of those things where it's like this is always wrong and people mm. at the time were saying hey this is wrong now they may have been a minority voice or many people didn't hear them and i think there was widespread uh abolitionism in, in the in the in the country at the time right you know pre-civil war which pushed and moved i think they were seen as extremists but they pushed and moved mm. a lot of the stuff to get you know reconstruction afterwards etc and it's just one of those things where it's like, you know, when you're talking about the British Empire, it's it's, it's so interesting how people have kind of, you know, maybe it's just the, the 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 proper way of the of the British or something. I don't know, but there it's it's having this kind of sort of reckoning of things, and it's interesting how how in the United States, you know, as as former colonists, you know, we ended up doing the same things. We ended up being imperialists and being you know colonizing the same way, and it's it's interesting how well we come from that. And we didn't want to do that, but then we just did that to other people and in different, you know, island states around the world and other places. And it's like, well, we're just doing the same thing. We tried to get freedom from. We're do making the same mistakes. I mean, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's and 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 so you know, when you take into, you know, which is why I think that you know, histories of the United States, when written by indigenous scholars, for example, you asked a question early on. I realized I didn't answer part of it. Um, is that you know, when you have a uh, you know. Um, Euro-Americans, or, or I should say white Americans or Europeans writing about the history of the United States or, or, or European empires, it's a very different history oh, yeah. from one written by Indigenous people. Or So, it, you know, it, for one of the great things about uh, uh, 
scholarship of the British Empire is from the sort of uh, 70s onwards. We had post-colonial scholarship, which changed a lot of the way we understand history. It's this is scholarship written by people from recently independent countries, especially India, that then started to lead the way on. Uh, and these were the very first histories where suddenly we were like, oh, were we the bad guys? Oh, my God. And it's because, you know, it's, it's first, finally we have a different perspective. Um, and that's why those contributions are so rich. And, and one of the one of the big kind of challenges that I had writing this is I'm another white guy from Britain trying to tell the history of the British empire that uh, isn't just from a British perspective, but how can I, you know, ever really try and do that? And as a specialist of the British empire, I like to think I have a contribution to make, but will it ever be as authentic or comprehensive than if it was written by someone from the global south for example who very rarely have the opportunity to write these histories because you know the state of academia or the resources they have you know <laughs> the the privilege we have in places like the united states and and europe is that you know we can dedicate time you know this took me sort of three to well all told in about four and a half years to write um a lot of that was just me for three years writing and reading and that's such an indulgent and wonderful thing opportunity that i had but i know that just because i had that doesn't mean this is you know the the only perspective in history of that so i think that when we incorporate those uh kind of non-white non-european american voices into conversation it's almost like wow this is a totally different history and it's just yeah. it's like in any situation in life when we get a different perspective on mm-hmm. something that we thought we knew it completely changes how we appreciate things so um i think you know i always think about wonder yeah yes you know white abolitionism you know, it was wonderful. And it was great pressure that helped to, you know, eventually abolish slavery. But, you know, what, ha- you know, what if those, uh, you know, enslaved people, and I could think of at least a dozen slave rebellions in pre-Civil War period, which oh, uh-huh, uh-huh. would said to everyone, you yeah, know, what you're doing is wrong because look, we're, you're done. But, you know, and I think what, what would, you know, enslaved people have done that reverses that time? I just think about like, the narrative around the British abolition of slave trade, which is seen as this triumphant moment, again, a rehabilitating story of the British Empire, you know, and you cannot find a politician that if asked about the British Empire won't go, well, of course, it abolished slavery and it built the railways. And you think, well, actually, the first people to abolish slavery was in Haiti um, when that became independent of France. The first thing it did, a couple of years before Britain, is abolish slavery. The moment, you know, Indigenous, non-European or enslaved people were able to shape the story they did you know the opposite to what europeans did and i just think how interesting or how different our understanding of all of this would be if they had been the prominent voices mm-hmm. that they had written the histories that have come down to us and so what we're doing i guess now is we're deconstructing centuries long entrenched european and anglo-american histories of these things and um and so uh, i just think that yeah those voices have always been there you know, you know, slave uprisings and, and, and yeah. you know, uh, and, in, you know, indigenous, uh, you know, atrocities to indigenous and non-European people. And um, and so they are the, the really authentic voices. Mm-hmm. Now, they very rarely leave written records and the histories we don't have, but, you know, we should be making every effort still to switch oh, yeah. Perspective. Oh, yeah. I think that will change how we understand contemporary values and this idea of presentism will just kind of evaporate, I think. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, but it's just it, it just pulls in so many different feelings and perspectives. And, you know, I don't think that process will ever be uh, uncontested. Because yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, to- I totally agree with you. I mean, we have a handful of uh, indigenous scholars now writing books and publishing here in the United States, which is yeah. which is wonderful to see. I, I had somebody on the podcast uh, a little while ago. Uh, she's a historian, 
um, uh, Megan Kate Nelson, and she wrote this book called The Three, uh, the Three. Oh, let me butcher the title name. The Three Cornered War, I think, is what it's called. And um, great book. Uh, I think it was a finalist for the Pulitzer here. And um, she tells the story of the Civil War in the West. Right. So, uh, New Mexico, Colorado, you know, West Texas, you know, Arizona, all that, which doesn't in general get talked about as much. It's always, you know, here on the East coast, East of the Mississippi, it's all that stuff, which is, you know, a lot of prominent battles were there and stuff, but not as, as, um, uh, spotlight of the West Western theater, if you will. And the really cool thing about the book is she talks about the union, right? uh the good guys right and and then the confederates the bad guys right we need those narratives but the interesting thing is that she talks about native peoples Mm. and how there was hence the three-cornered war not all native peoples really cared about the war that we were having and Mm -hmm. and so then they get pulled into it and they're fighting on different sides and it becomes very convoluted out in the west a story i never knew Never knew that story. Never knew how come. I didn't even know all the stuff that happened in the traditional narrative of the Civil War in the West, much mm-hmm. less incorporating how that was with Native peoples. And and she kind of gives an epilogue of the kind of the afters. And so it's just, it's, but the point I'm bringing that up is we, A, we need more stories like that. But B, um, you know, reading like you know reviews or comments or whatever. Of course, she was nominated for a Pulitzer. People loved it. I loved it. A lot of great people loved it. Oh, man, she got a lot of hate for it though. I'm sure she a did. lot of pushback for it. And it was like, why? Yeah. Why? Why? Because you're just telling a story with more than like your traditional narrative. It's it's not trying to. It's not making up something that didn't happen. It's just telling the story we don't usually hear that's just as valuable as anything else. I don't know why you wouldn't tell that. It's like yeah. it's like watching three-fourths of a movie and not watching the end of it. It's like you got to watch all the parts. I don't understand why people resist that. I mean, I suspect that, it, you know, this is always the case that also she's a woman. Uh, and is she indigenous? Uh, no, that's my knowledge of. Okay. But, you know, just the fact that she's, she's you know, we always come in um, revisionist historians uh, uh, when – they're, they're women they always come in for that kind of um a challenge but but i think just anyone who you know what they're essentially just enriching a story that we already know and mm-hmm. providing it with a more comprehensive scope but you know it's what we said earlier it's you're then complicating a cherished yeah. simplistic narrative and that's seen as a threat to a whole group of people mm-hmm. in society that i'm not even going to start talking about but um <laughs> but you know whether they're representative or whether it's a very vocal minority yeah it's interesting mm-hmm. but yeah but that, that and so you know yeah why wouldn't you tell all the threads of a story I, right yeah same to me i yeah me too i don't understand it so it's it's nice hearing those different parts i don't hear that part i just always get the same kind of stuff so real quick i guess some um, uh, I, I want to obviously be respectful of your time. So in the in the last uh, minutes that we have, uh, we can maybe sp- split the rest of the time into just kind of the the second parts, the uh, part two and three of the book. Uh, so in the in the second part of the book, uh, you talk about the British Empire and how they're it's a little bit different when they get to um, to India, when they get to you have the Ottoman Empire, you have the you have all of these in 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 uh i guess eurasia or, or asia um totally different than how it was in ireland in the in the americas in the caribbean um 
I guess thematically, and you can just pull from different things here. Obviously, as you mentioned, you have the Spanish and the Dutch that were roaming around there, and there was a lot yeah. of competition there in Asia. Obviously, you have the East India Company. I'm sure you know and have read uh, uh, Rimple and all of his his quartets. Yeah, he was when he was on the podcast. He is an absolutely lovely man. Uh, he is, he's, yeah. he's very brilliant. Um, anyways, so yeah, just you can pull from all these things from the Ottomans. Ottomans are a 600 year empire. It's amazing. Uh, it, it was fascinating, fascinating empire. Um, anyways, what what can you say about the British uh, in this oh. part of the world uh, mm. and how they they ha- they handled some of the dynamics from competition or other empires? Yeah. So uh, what I think is really interesting when the story shifts, not necessarily chronologically later, these things are often happening at the same time. You know, the East India Company launched in 1600, right. establishes its first kind of uh, trading post in 1603. Yeah, they're not even in Virginia yet in 1603. Um, you know, colonization of uh, the Caribbean doesn't happen in 1620. So these things are, um, you know, happening at the same time, which I always find quite interesting. But um, and so when they go to Asia, um, they find uh, very different um, systems. You know, Asia is essentially the kind of center of the world, really, at this period. And you know, obviously, it's quite cyclical. And you know, this is a. Uh, coming back to that in a way economically um you know culturally and uh, militarily the mughal empire in on the indian subcontinent is you know commands 125 million people 20 percent of the world's gdp um you, you know, the, it's indo-persian culture spreads across the world uh fabulous uh architecture and so um centers of you know islamic learning and um it just makes you know, uh, England on the northwest tip of uh, of Europe looked this kind of drab and unsophisticated. And so, for for when you know the English arrive, the hat men, as they're often called, uh, for the long hats they wear, um, you know, they look you know, they look down upon this completely, you know, insignificant. They offer no goods that anyone in Asia wants. The prime export of of England is wool. You know, people in Southeast Asia, 40 degrees, they don't want woolly jumpers, uh, even at Christmas. You know, we always wear woolly jumpers, but no one in. They're, they're draped in Japanese, Chinese silk and and sumptuous Indian cotton textiles. And and so the English struggle to establish themselves commercially. It's a very sophisticated commercial system. The rivals of the English, yes, they're to an extent the Dutch and Portuguese, but the real rivals are the Chinese. Mm-hmm. Chinese merchants, the Chinese diaspora is entrenched in every port in Asia. Um, China, just before the European arrival, China was the dominant economic and political power. Um, and for a long time, its uh, vassalage system, uh, its tributary system uh, made it, you know, the centre of everything. Uh, in the Ming, uh, and then later the Qing Empire kind of um, uh, withdraws from the outside world slightly, but the Chinese communities that are already established remain and they create this very sophisticated trading system. Chinese goods are the goods that are really in, in demand across Asia, not English woolens and, you know, um, porcelain, lacquer goods, raw silk. Um, and the English just cannot compete. And so they fail to crack the spice trade in, in, in on the island of Java in today's Indonesia. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they try it in, and they go to Japan um, and they open up a, 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 a port, a, a a trading post there in 1613 onwards and again they found the chinese um are more sophisticated the tokugawa shogunate 
the uh, state Japanese state is very centralized, very regulated. It has a bureaucracy, the Bakufu military government that is so vast and complex, it regulates every. It's very much like a modern bureaucracy at the time in England. There was perhaps 1,200 mostly part-time kind of semi kind of civil servants, very small bureaucracy. Um, and so, you know, Japan is so centralized and everything is so regulated, the English struggle to to maintain their presence um, and then when they start to kind of commit piracy to get what they want rather than trade, they're quickly expelled from Japan. And so it's a kind of catalogue of failures. Suddenly they're thrust into this, you know, the epicentre of Mm. power in the world and the English just can't compete. And so Mm. they get their first success in India, in Mughal India, not because they're able to outcompete people or or to to assert any kind of or project any kind of power but they gradually learn to play by Mughal rules and to mm-hmm. uh, do as they're told and to adapt to the situation they acquire a kind of trading charter a, a, a trade deal I guess it's called a farman an imperial decree from the Mughal emperor uh, allows them to trade in India uh, as long as they behave themselves and one of the things the Mughals are so sophisticated at doing with these Europeans that arrive on their doorstep it's kind of playing them off one against another and the English are pitted against the Portuguese and the Mughals sort of watch on as the Portuguese and the English kind of shred each other apart Um, and the English emerge victorious so they're given a seat at the Mughal table and they become a key trading partner and so it's very different in these highly regulated centralized very wealthy and populous empires of of Asia and and, uh, the Middle East where the English have to adapt and and work within these powerful structures in North America in the Caribbean they they pull down those existing kingdoms and economic structures and replace them i wonder when i was reading this part of the book and i was thinking about this i i always wonder again it's just different around the world but i wonder if there was if if indigenous uh, peoples and and tribes here in the america all all up and down the americas in the caribbean if they had something like that like it was 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 in asia again totally different histories totally different you know landscapes but something analogous to that would it have been different? Yeah, it's it's interesting because I, you know, that, that's I think that's a good, you know, that's a good question. Um, and we do see sophisticated empires, and you know, especially in Mesoamerica with the Spanish yeah. uh, and the Aztecs, and you know, yeah, they're yeah. quite easily overwhelmed. In islands, the Irish kingdoms are quite powerful. The uh, the Earl of Tyrone has a revenue equals Queen Elizabeth's and uh, a modern army, and so you do see establishments. Not on the scale of the Ottoman Empire that is across four continents and, you know, can field a fleet of 200 warships and a hun- an army, 100,000, or the Mughal Empire in the uh, Indo-Gangetic heartland, 120 million people. Nothing like that. And and so, and the English do, across the 70th century, spar with the Mughal Empire, for example, and each time it's they're kind of squatted away. And there's a war in Bengal, in eastern India, and it's not so much a war as the English sort of being chased out and having to come back and sort of beg for forgiveness. And so, um, and and even with the sort of powerful polities and, and states in the Americas and and around the Atlantic Rim, there's nothing quite comparable. So it's difficult to say. Yeah. But what I would say is, it's not necessarily you know. And I think there's something I hopefully make clear in the book is that even in those places like you know the Caribbean where. The English are successful and they do virtually destroy the Kalinago indigenous people. That process still takes over a century. Mm. And um, it's still, you know, for most of that period that we think of 
the English colonised the Caribbean. Actually, the Caribbean is half colonised and it's partitioned virtually with the indigenous people mm-hmm. who are very effective at resisting. So even there, that it's not quite the English come in and conquer. There's a very protracted struggle that the English are not always... And, you know, in Ireland, it takes you know, yeah. hundreds and hundreds of years to happen. So it's not quite a comparison of, you know, easing the Atlantic, difficult in Asia. But mm-hmm. um, the, 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 the imbalance of power is staggering and you don't mm-hmm. find that in the Atlantic and the Asia. And I think that, that yeah, it probably would have been a different story had you had something like mm-hmm. the Ottoman Empire in um, in in North America. So, but the other, the other thing is the English state is very weak in this period. It's very difficult to project its power overseas. Its successor, the the British state with the union with England and Scotland becomes far more effective and capable, but England in the 17th century, you know, it's idea of projecting power against the Mughal Empire. It sends, you know, three ships and 400 uh, guys to take it on. And, um, and so it's a bit of a laugh, but um uh, but you know, it's in in North America and the Caribbean. It has the massive advantage of overwhelming immigration from Europe, and so even the most resilient and powerful of the indigenous polities, the Powhatan chieftain, or even the Kalinago, who militarily are very effective, are just completely overwhelmed by a human tidal wave. And if you think about the islands of the Caribbean, these specks, these you know the 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 top of these sunken volcanoes um you know 70 you know, square miles or so uh, you know, there's forty thousand europeans uh living on those tiny islands by the end of the 17th century there's two hundred fifty thousand europeans in america by the end of the 17th century there's no uh comparable um english immigration to the ottoman empire or the mughal empire and so um Yes, the English are able to get their power better in the Caribbean, North America, but much of their success just comes from this this tidal wave of, of human uh, colonization. That you know, by the fifteen thousand Powhatans um, in the beginning of the seventeenth century, um, within thirty years, are outnumbered two to one by Europeans, and uh, the, the Powhatans orchestrate this attack on the English that that decimates a third of the English population. And within a year and a half, that number has been recuperated, you know, twofold. And so that, that that's the struggle there, is I think mass immigration of uh, Europeans into the Caribbean into, doesn't happen in Asia or, or the Mediterranean. And then, so maybe we could look at that and had that been a different story if there was a stronger English presence in there. But no, without a doubt, you know, once they get to Asia, uh, that if they don't play by Mughal or Ottoman rules, then... Um, then simply that their trade doesn't thrive. It only begins to grow at the end of the 17th century when, yeah, they learn to be good vassals, essentially. They're, they're vassals of the Mughal emperor and the Ottoman sultan. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think different dynamic, absolutely. And that's why I think it's important as well. We, we just don't look at this story from London or from the perspective of Britain, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because a lot of it is dependent on the local context and the differences between these regions. So yeah, what happens yeah. in on the island of Java is totally different to what happens in Ireland. And it isn't always just, you know, and that tells us where agency lies as well. It just doesn't lie with the Europeans necessarily. It, it lies with those very robust and dynamic structures and people that they encounter there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So real quick, uh, just tell us about uh, when you get to Africa again. It's the third part of the book. Uh, you talk mm-hmm. about the, you mentioned earlier, the Royal African Com- Company. Um, you talk about the Dalmian conquests off the Atlantic coast. Um, obviously, there's you know um, products that were very prized. There was slavery here. Just kind of talk about just thematically, real quick, about some of the mm. the role of the British Empire in Africa. 
Yeah, well, I think it's interesting. I wanted to tackle the the trade in enslaved people just because it saturates every level of the British Empire. It, even in a place like Asia, which we don't associate with slavery, the East India Company is involved in slave trade, and mm-hmm. at one point, it's it's um, it's enslaving so many children that the Mughal Empire steps in and bans them from 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 doing so. Um, and so, slavery, yeah, it, like it does all European empires and all empires at the time, the Ottoman uh, as well, and and so what I want to do is to is to and so we think that a region like West Africa that until recently has been has been reduced almost like North America in the story of the British Empire is that just just you know America's you know, this kind of wilderness where the indigenous people are essentially killed off by disease and stuff or actually no there's thriving and powerful polities that resist the English in West Africa it's not just a place of slavery there are sophisticated flourishing kingdoms um and communities there and i want to shed light on that sophistication there are highly centralized and monetized and 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 militarized states that are you know from for some british uh observers when they get to places like dahomey which is a kingdom in west africa um that they say i've never seen the like in all my life you know these powerful armies and the you know this king of dahomey has 12 palaces and he you know he's cupboards are full of the riches of europe and they go they're not for slaves initially but the portuguese and the dutch and english arrive there for cloth uh, some of the richest and most luxurious cloth can be found produced in west africa uh, west african products were found on the beds in you know of, of, of um of england and the Stuart period covers and and salt sellers salt shakers and and so west africa itself was a place of of wealth and production and um, and sophisticated culture with large cities and established trade networks. And so I wanted to bring that to the fore then to show how when, you know, the English arrive and they eventually become the leading trader in enslaved Africans by the end of the 17th, early 18th century, when their plantation colonies in the Americas take off, um, is that, again, it's not just the Europeans coming here and taking over and, and, and taking slaves away, but it's it's a far more complicated picture of, you know, African power and the Africans were not just victims of the British Empire, but they themselves, you know, could could adopt a position of power and control. Um, and so whilst still shedding light on, you know, the size of the trade enslaved Africans and and the, the immense suffering of West Africans, you know, West Africans were victims, probably the largest victims in history, 12 and a half million people trafficked uh, yeah. across the Atlantic. Um, uh, nonetheless, there are still stories of West African power. And so I thought the expansion of the Kingdom of Dahomey told that really well, in which um, the states on the on the Atlantic coast that were dealing with slavery before the expansion of Dahomey were reduced to European puppets almost and European influence. They could you know, depose kings and put whomever they want on their throne that would supply them with slaves. When Dahomey comes along, it's very centralised, militarised state. It gains control of the trade and regulates it and forces Europeans uh, to play by their rules. Um, they set prices. They um, force Europeans to exchange them only certain kinds of goods. When Europeans, you know, engage in political Machiavellian schemes, they are, it, you know, their factories, their posts are destroyed. Sometimes they're beheaded and enslaved. And so by the mid 18th century, um, there is a trade in enslaved Africans, of course, and, and the British still leave, but now regulated by an African kingdom that derives immense benefit from that relationship. And so it was a good example, of, even in the twilight of the early modern period, you know, the pre-modern age, the 18th century, by the 19th century with industrialization and um and things like that, we tend to enter the modern period. But you know, the in the in the 18th century, when we think of the kind of 
yeah, the dominance of Europeans. Even then, states are emerging that are able to take control, to reshape commercial relationships and the relationship between Europeans and indigenous people, and to set the terms of that and to and, and for the British to again kind of accommodate. So West Africa is an interesting position in this narrative because it's not quite part of you know the Atlantic history that we assume with the Caribbean, North America. It's not quite you know it doesn't sit brilliantly with Asia or the Mediterranean. It's it's kind of its own unique region. And and one we all, all always just you know just reduced to this idea of slavery. And while slavery is important, it's not the only history of West Africa, and it's one of immense resilience and, and power that they could often command over Europeans. Now, that doesn't lessen their role in the trade in slave people. Um, you know, West African elites derived immense benefit from that trade, but they could also control it. They weren't powerless themselves, and I thought that was also another important story that doesn't negate what we know, but perhaps adds an extra dimension to it. Yeah, yeah, no, I absolutely agree. It was a fascinating part of the book to read because, again, this is not something uh, I know a whole lot about, and it was it was absolutely wonderful to see like all the like complexity there. And again, we get the kind of one dimensional kind of story here. And and mm-hmm. again, it's not to say it's not true, but but uh, there's a lot going on. Yeah. So 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 I guess the the last question I have here is is that uh, you you you've uh, you've you've written you know this book. Not necessarily to show how awful the British Empire was, um, although there's terrible things about it, uh, like there is with any empire, but uh, to have a more robust view of the stories we don't hear. So it's kind of going back to what we started with. I guess, what's the the final thing you want to say here on this, on on how do you want people to to receive your book and to receive it most accurately so that they what you were trying to say really gets home to people where you can say yeah that that's exactly what i was trying to say um so what i would hope is that in telling a history of the resilience and power of non-european and indigenous people in this period is about about saying something about the legacy of the british empire today and so i think a lot of our misconceptions and ideas around you know race and uh um you know international order and inequality and uh, imperialism kind of derives from a lot of the misconceptions about the early modern period and the emergence of the British Empire. And I think um, if we reduce this idea that Britain sort of conquered and, and steamrolled over the world and reshaped it in its modern image, then we are going to bring out of that a lot of misconceptions about Western superiority and mm-hmm. uh, and adopt a lot of, or regurgitate a lot of those stereotypes about uh, non-European people. Um, and so in trying to recenter the history or the story on very powerful, uh, very successful indigenous and non-European people and their societies and, and their states. Um, I wanted to show that, yes, they were victims of British imperialism and colonialism, often on a horrific scale. And the book uh, gives that that's appropriate uh, attention and focus. As you said, it's, you know, it does um, it does show the atrocities of the British Empire and, and uh, the horrors visited upon um, non-European indigenous people. But it also shows them to be more than just victims. They were capable of containing British ambition. They were capable of taking the British on, sometimes succeeding. You know, there are you take a map of the British Empire at its height. There are massive parts that aren't covered in imperial pink. And you think, well, did were the English not interested? Yes, but they just didn't succeed. They were beaten out. And sometimes the, the resistance was intergenerational and took centuries. And so it tells us that these societies were not just passive victims, unable to contest their fate, that they were resilient, often successful. And therefore, I think that changed our understanding of the pre-modern world as, as one that wasn't, you know, 
as the British at the time like to stereotype as simple one, civilised or backward. Um, it's just that when Britain conquered that after three centuries, you know, a constellation of diverse and dynamic states and people, that it rewrote that history, that, you know, that West Africa was a place where children were sold for pots and pans, that North America was a wilderness whose people were killed off by disease, or that Asia was mired in despotism and, you know, heathenism. These are British stories. These are stories of, of colonialists. And I think that by showing that these cultures were diverse and sophisticated, that their economies were flourishing, uh, and that, um, you know, their political and military history was, was um, you know, successful and powerful, then I think it helps to contextualise the British and the British Empire. Um, and to give, you know, those states and cultures that are now independent of the British Empire and uh, achieve their independence um, gives them a kind of... Uh, uh, a more empowering history to draw upon uh, that their ancestors were not passive victims that there are stories you know success and, and triumph and power um in a relationship we've always understood as to be a massive imbalance of power that that veered towards the the modern technologically superior culturally superior british that's just not sustainable if we switch the perspective of that narrative yeah no no it's, it's very well said the uh, the book is called The Great Defiance: How the World Took on the British Empire. This is out May twenty fifth in the UK. It's through Ebury Press, part of Penguin Random House UK. Is uh, does this have a US date? I don't think it does. Does this what? Sorry, does this have a US date? When, it doesn't it? at the moment. It's available through certain UK suppliers like Foils Books, but it, that the US date is still being figured out. So watch this space. Yeah, yeah, I would say. Um, one of the one of the wonderful things is uh, that uh, David was so nice to send me his book, so I've I've read it and it's fabulous. So for American listeners, uh, you'll have to listen to his podcast and get it directly from from the UK until it comes out in the US. For all of my listeners across the pond, uh, you can uh, you can pick it up on the twenty fifth of May, uh, which is it's it's really it's really fantastic. Uh, where's the best place to um to find yourself, whether online or? Or any other places uh, professionally, where's the best place to get at you? Find me on Twitter. I'm terrible on Twitter, as in the fact that I'm always on it. Um, so, or uh, visit the University of Bangor website to see more about my research and publications uh, as well. No, great. Look, David, this was uh, an absolutely wonderful conversation. I I really really enjoy myself. Really really uh, a, a lot of a lot of depth there on a lot of important topics. I. I, I was. I'm so pleased with uh, the conversation. It was a. It was a real delight. I, I can't say enough thanks. Yeah, me too. Absolutely, really enjoyable. Thank you. It's been really exciting to talk about the book, and I'm glad that the kind of issues it threw up is exactly the reason I wrote the book. So I'm, I'm glad that they yeah. chimed. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.